Okay, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, what we're going to see today is Paul is going to explain um, what life is like as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther would, would probably summarize this in what he said when he said that we are, as believers in Jesus Christ, simultaneously justified and yet we're still sinners. He said it as simul justice et peccator. But we are simultaneously, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified, we have been made right with God, declared righteous, and at the same time we are still sinners. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. Let's pray one more time and then we'll begin. Father, we need your spirit now to open our eyes, to illumine our mind, to see truths out of your word. I pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you would fill us with joy as Jesus himself said in John 15. He prayed that his joy would be in us and that it would be full. So I pray that we leave here today full of his joy. May you get great glory in that. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon title today comes from a book by Puritan John Owen. There's a picture of him. That goes to show you that God has always used guys with weird hair to extend his kingdom. So I'm, I'm in good company with John Owen. Owen's book on indwelling sin was originally published in 1675. And his book stresses what this section in Galatians 5 is talking about that though believers are justified and though that we are in union with Jesus Christ and though we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelling sin still remains in every single one of us. Though we have all of the benefits of Jesus Christ, sin still remains. We're still sinners And we still have to fight indwelling sin every day until the day we die or until Jesus returns, whichever one comes first. Now, Owen's original book title was this, The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers, Together with the Ways of Its Working and Means of Prevention, Opened, Evinced, and Applied, with a Resolution of Sundry Cases of Conscience Thereunto Appertaining. There's a reason we call it indwelling sin today and we don't go by that title right there. That's a reason I called this sermon, I titled this sermon indwelling sin. I wanted to just put that whole thing there, but I didn't want to drive Donna crazy as she tried to cram it all into our bulletin. So I just went with indwelling sin. It's a book that I highly recommend Because in this book, John Owen helps explain our struggle with indwelling sin, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage in Galatians today. Here's what John Owen says about believers in Jesus Christ, about Christians, about disciples. And this is the description of him who is a sinner, as everyone who is the former is the latter also. These are the contrary principles and the contrary operations that are in him. The principles are a will of doing good on the one hand from grace and a law of sin on the other. What he's saying is that as believers, we have a desire to do good, but we also have this desire in us for sin. He continues, it is then all our concerns to be thoroughly acquainted with these things who intend to walk with God and to glorify him in this world. So Christian, do you want to walk with God? Do you want to glorify him in this world? Then Owen is saying, you better know 
your sin. You better know that you still have sin dwelling inside of you. He says, we shall find what diligence and watchfulness is required unto a Christian conversation, or he means a way of life. There is a constant enemy unto it in everyone's own heart. And what an enemy it is, we shall afterwards show, for this is our design, to discover him. That's the enemy of indwelling sin. To discover him to the utmost. There is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainder of indwelling sin in believers with a constant inclination and working toward evil. Awake, therefore, all of you in whose heart is anything of the ways of God. Your enemy is not only upon you, but in you. He is at work by all ways of force and craft. Awake to the consideration of this cursed enemy, which is the spring of all these innumerable other evils, as also the ruin of all the souls that perish in this world. This is exactly what Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25 is talking about. How do we, as the Puritans say, mortify? How do we put to death sin? How do we put to death indwelling sin? That indwelling sin that remains in every single believer in Jesus Christ and is certainly in every unbeliever. How do we kill selfishness? How do we keep from living self-absorbed lives? Do you want to know how? Well, let's make it a little more relatable. Do you want to know how to stop being bothered by people when they cut you off in the roundabouts? Do you want to know how to stop losing it with your kids? Parents, you ever lose it with your kids? You know you do. I do too. And I usually sound like that when I lose it with them. My voice gets elevated and I start yelling and screaming. Do you want to know how to stop getting irritated at your spouse? Now I have some of your attention. All of these irritations are expressions of indwelling sin. The fact that people bother you, the fact that you lust, the fact that you get out of control angry at insignificant things means that you, Christian, still have an enemy within and that enemy is called indwelling sin and that's precisely Why you are selfish. Well, how's that for being exposed on a Sunday morning? How do we mortify? How do we kill indwelling sin? How do we put sin to death? We do it by walking by the Spirit. And we'll unpack what this means in a moment, but here's our big idea today, and it's this. The normal Christian life is war. The normal Christian life that every single Christian lives the moment they are regenerated by the Spirit of God and are adopted into God's family, that that very moment, the normal Christian life is one of war. To be a Christian means that you signed up to go to war. To go to war on your selfishness every moment of your life. That's what being a disciple of Jesus Christ is all about. It's about you being empowered by the Spirit of God, you being empowered by the Word of God to put sin and selfishness to death every day, every moment of your life. 
Look at verses 16 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what does Paul mean when he says, walk by the Spirit? He uses similar phrases in the rest of the passage. In verse 18, he will talk about being led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he will say to live by the Spirit. So what does Paul mean when he says, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit? To answer that question, we have to see what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. In John 16, Jesus said that he would send another helper, the Holy Spirit. And what would the Holy Spirit do? Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide believers into all truth and glorify Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He points to Jesus all the time. His goal is to glorify the Son. That's the passion of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. Every day, every moment of your life, Christian, the Holy Spirit is pointing you towards Jesus. So to walk by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit and to live by the Spirit means that we are to continually turn our gaze to Jesus, the Son of God. To walk by the Spirit To be led by the Spirit and to live by the Spirit means that we understand that we have been adopted into God's family and that we are his children, as Galatians 4, 6 says. Paul says, the Father has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. To understand what it means to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. We cannot disconnect what Paul has said about the Spirit in the rest of this book, what preceded this. Because so many people talk about walking in the Spirit and they don't even mention what Paul has already said about the Spirit. And in chapter 3, he said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is God doing miracles among you because of the flesh, walking according to the law, or hearing through faith? To walk in the Spirit means that you believe by faith all the promises of the gospel. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. In a nutshell, to walk in the Spirit simply means this, that we are always rehearsing the gospel. But here's the problem. You and I don't continually rehearse the gospel. We don't continually turn our gaze to Jesus. We often, often take our eyes off of Jesus. And why do we do that? Because of indwelling sin. And that's why Paul described the Christian life as a war, as a struggle. Look again at Galatians 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen, Christian, you have the spirit of God inside you. So there is a natural desire now that you have the spirit to want to do good things, to live for God's glory, to honor him, to love others, to serve others. There's a part of you that wants to do that. But there's another part of you. That's very self-absorbed and selfish. 
And the reason that we don't do the things that we want to do, like love and serve others, is because there is an inner war inside of every single disciple of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus, leading us to Jesus. But because we're sinners and we still have indwelling sin in us, we are prone to focus on our wants, our wishes, our needs. The Spirit is always saying, look to Jesus. Come on, look to Jesus. Gaze at him. Be amazed at him. Be enthralled to him. Let him thrill your soul. And there's a part of us that says, I want to. But then there's a part of us that says, but I love me. And I want my way. And I want this sin. I want this bad thing. But, but, but I want Jesus, but I want it. And there's this war happening. That's the struggle that Paul is describing between the spirit and the flesh. To gratify the desires of the flesh then means that we live for ourselves. It means to live for self to be self-absorbed in every relationship that you have, to be selfish, to do what you want, to get what you want. And it's a struggle and it's a war because we love ourselves, don't we? Listen, I love me. I don't get on my nerves. Did you know that? Y'all do, but not me. You guys get on my nerves, but I have no problem with me whatsoever. I like me. I love me. I don't bother me. Everybody else in my life bothers me. Every person who isn't Benji Magnus bothers me and gets under my skin because I'm in love with me. And there's a struggle inside of my heart because indwelling sin wants everything that Benji wants. And the Spirit of God wants everything that the Spirit of God wants. And sometimes I want the Spirit, what the Spirit of God wants. But I also want what I want. And what does the Spirit want? To get my eyes off of me, to turn them to Jesus. And when I get my eyes off of me and I turn them to Jesus, then I will honor him and glorify him. And when I turn my eyes to Jesus, then I will go and love and serve others. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, as an opportunity to be selfish. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The flesh and the spirit are at war within each believer. Now, what is the flesh? It's the Greek word sarx, and it's sometimes translated as flesh, like it is here in the ESV. When the New Testament uses the word flesh, and it's talking about that which is in opposition to the spirit, it's not simply talking about our physical bodies. When the New Testament uses flesh and talking about that which is in opposition to the spirit of God, what it's talking about is our selfishness, our sin. It's not always talking about our physical body. Tim Keller says this, that flesh is the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. The sarks, our flesh, is our sinful heart. Or rather, it is the part or or the aspect of our hearts which is not yet renewed by the Spirit. It's most accurate to think of the Spirit as the renewed Christian heart made new by the Holy Spirit. Our sinful nature was there, 
ruling alone and unopposed before we were Christians. The Spirit, however, entered supernaturally when we first became Christians and has begun a renewal that is now our new nature. So our flesh is basically the me-centered part of us. It's basically selfishness. It's the part of us that disregards God and disregards others. It's basically being self-absorbed. And the spirit is in conflict with the flesh because what does the spirit desire? To glorify Jesus. The spirit wants to glorify Jesus and turn our eyes to Jesus. And when we see Jesus and we realize that we have all that we ever need in him, then we're free to go love and serve others and thereby fulfill the law, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. We glorify Jesus when we are loving him, satisfied in him, and then that catapults us out to love and serve others. But it's a struggle, and that's why the normal Christian life is war. The normal Christian life is 24-7 war, until the day you die or until Jesus returns, whichever one comes first. It's a battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, and it's fought on the turf of your heart and on the turf of mine. That's where the battle rages, and it's a war because we don't always want to love others. We don't always want to serve others, do we? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we really want to love and serve others, but not all the time. We want to be served. We don't naturally want to love and serve others. The Spirit has to do that work in our heart. Naturally, we want to serve ourselves, and that's why it's a battle, and that's why it's a struggle. And that's why John Stott called this battle between the flesh and the Spirit as an irreconcilable antagonism. And that's why Sammy Rhodes said this on Twitter a few days ago, highlighting the struggle between the spirit and our selfishness. He said this, The only word that accurately describes your spouse asking you to do something once you're in bed is betrayal. (laughs) If you're on Twitter, you need to follow Sammy Rhodes. He is hilarious. Um, But isn't that the truth? You get in bed, you get settled, you get cozy, maybe you're starting to drift off to sleep, and then your spouse says, will you go get me a glass of water? There's only one word for that, betrayal. That's the only good word for it. Why is that though? Why is it that when the person we swore those vows to and covenanted together, when they ask us to get up out of bed and get them something or do something for them, why is it that we get so upset? The answer We're selfish. We're sinners. To use John Owen's words, indwelling sin. It's proof that the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh and the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. And it's proof that the normal Christian life is war. Now, let me give you an example from my life of how this battle rages in each one of us and particularly how it rages in me. So I'm about to ruin your idea of me, okay? If you have me set up on some sort of pedestal, I'm gonna give you uh, an insight into my heart and you'll wanna get a shovel and start digging and you'll wanna put me down there, okay? I'm going to ruin your view of me. Earlier this week, my wife Heather asked me to go to Starbucks 
and get her a drink after I drop the kids off at school. And you know what I said? I don't have time. I'll have to wait in line for like 15 minutes. I got to get to work. I have a sermon that I have to start writing. Now, I actually said it probably more like Napoleon Dynamite, maybe, if you've seen that movie. I don't have time. I have to wait in line for like 15 minutes. I've got to get to work. I have a sermon that I have to start writing. So basically, I was tired of serving my family. I'd been serving my kids all morning because Heather's pregnant with our sixth kid, sick, in bed. And I made the kids breakfast. I packed their lunches. I got them dressed, got their backpacks ready. So at this point in my life, I was done serving my family. It's like, sorry, Heather, but the kids have sucked all the serving out of me. And I've got nothing left. But I felt bad. And I reluctantly and with a major attitude grabbed the Starbucks mug and headed off to Starbucks. Now, this is that Starbucks mug where you buy and you get free espresso drinks all January. So it wasn't even like this was going to throw our budget off or anything. This was a free drink. I mean, I'm getting a free drink. It wasn't going to cost me anything except my own time. So I grabbed this mug and I head off to Starbucks with an attitude. Johnny Selfish here. Drop the kids off at school, go to Starbucks, a little ticked that I have to get her a drink because I have this glorious sermon to work on, the one you're listening to right now. (laughs) And I order her a caramel macchiato. I made sure I let the barista know that this was for my wife because honestly, I didn't want someone thinking that I drink some fluffy drink. (laughs) I drink black coffee. That's what I like. Any temperature, black coffee, not some sugary, girly drink. Now, if you're a guy here and you drink a caramel macchiato, I'm going to tell you, you got to turn in your man card, okay? (laughs) But I wanted them to know, this isn't my drink. That was the fear of man, worrying what people would think about me that I had ordered what I think of as a girly drink. So I'm waiting for the barista to make Heather's drink, and this thought pops into my head. I bet that barista thinks I'm the greatest husband in the world because I'm getting my wife a drink. (laughs) Boom! It's like pride came instantly. Look at me, Mr. Selfless Good Husband Guy. But that thought didn't last long because I knew in my heart, even if the barista didn't know, even if the other customers didn't know, I knew that I was being selfish. I knew that I had a bad attitude about it. So I bring the drink home, give it to Heather, and I do not fulfill the law by loving my neighbor as myself, according to Galatians 5.14. This was all flesh, pure flesh, pure self. Fast forward to the next day. I get up, and I want to get her a drink. So I take the kids to school, and I kind of sneak out the door with the mug. And I go to Starbucks, and I get her a drink. She doesn't know it. And I come home, and I give it to her so that she can enjoy it. I wanted to serve her that day. There was a desire in my heart to do good because of the Spirit of God working in my heart. Two trips to Starbucks to get two caramel macchiatos One was done in the flesh, one was done selfishly, and one was done in the spirit. And that's why Paul says in verse 17 that sometimes we don't do the things that we actually want to do. And that's what this passage is about between the struggle of the flesh and the spirit. You change the names, you change the scenarios, you change the requests, you fill in the blanks, 
And that's what it looks like in your life. The normal Christian life is war. It's a battle between looking to Jesus and loving and serving others or being introspective, morbidly introspective in wanting your way and worshiping yourself. Now look at verses 18 through 21. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we'll come back to verse 18 in a moment, but let's look briefly at this list of sins. We're not going to go into detail on these. If you want to find out more about what's behind the Greek words here and everything, you can consult the commentary if you like. I just want us to understand what Paul is saying here. He's talking about how sin manifests itself habitually and characteristically in an unbeliever's life. Now, of course, a Christian can do these things. Some of you had a fit of anger this last week at your children or your spouse. So Paul is saying that it's not that a Christian can't be jealous. It's not that a Christian won't get drunk or can't get drunk. It's not that a Christian can't cause division. He's just saying this is how the world lives. Someone who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, an unbeliever. Of course a Christian can do these things. But Paul's point here is this is how unbelievers habitually live. This is the characteristics of their life. And that's why he says in verse 21 that those who do these things habitually and characteristically, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 18... That's a verb that stresses continual, habitual action. In other words, someone's life that is characterized by this list of sins is not a believer. A believer may commit these sins, yes, but their life is not characterized by these sins. These sins in this list, according to Scotty Smith, can be broken down as broken sexuality, broken spirituality, and broken community. We see broken sexuality with sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Broken spirituality is seen in idolatry and sorcery. Broken community with other human beings is seen with enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These sins are a snapshot, a picture of what it means to live life according to the flesh, according to our own selfish desires. And that's why Paul says if someone lives this way as a pattern, habitually, characteristically, their life is defined by these things, then he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're not a believer. In other words, believers will not inherit the kingdom of God because they are still under the curse of the law. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. To be led by the Spirit means that you are united to Jesus Christ. You are in union with him. It means that Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself for you and I on the cross. And since you are not under the curse of the law, then it means you have the Holy Spirit. 
And what does the Spirit produce in a believer's life? He produces a crop, a harvest of righteousness. As Paul says in Philippians 1.11, the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Those who have been imputed and given the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life, Paul is saying, those who have his righteousness, there's fruit that will come out of that. There's fruit that comes out in a believer's life because they're in union with Christ because they have his righteousness. And that's why Paul will say in Philippians 1.11, the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Here, Paul describes that fruit in verses 22 through 25. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In contrast to a habitual life of selfishness characterized by the flesh, Christians habitually bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let me say that again. In contrast to unbelievers who live a habitual life of selfishness characterized by the flesh, Christians habitually, characteristically live lives that bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now let me say three things about the fruit of the Spirit and then check the newsletter this week and we'll unpack the fruit a little bit more. We're not going to go into detail here because I want us to get a big picture of what Paul's saying. Three things about the fruit of the Spirit. First, the fruit of the Spirit does not grow in isolation. It's not like you can be really good at one of these and see it manifested and grown in your life and you stink at the the other eight. It's not like you say, I'm so good at patience. It's like I've got the patience tree. I've got a patience field full of patience tree and lots of patience fruit, but I kind of stink at the joy and the love. Okay, The fruit of the Spirit does not grow in isolation. They all grow on one tree in a crop, a harvest in your life. Now, sometimes you give in to selfishness and you don't love like you should. And then sometimes you do love like you should. And sometimes you're not patient like you should be. And sometimes you are. So the fruit does not grow in isolation. They grow collectively together. Secondly, the fruit of the Spirit grows as we use God-appointed means. If you want to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life, you have to use God-appointed means, namely the Word of God and the Lord's Supper. But also, I would say it's uh, fellowship, it's discipleship, it's living in community with one another. So it's the Word of God and the sacraments. It's the Word of God as we sit and listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word, as we meditate on his word and think upon his word and let his word mutter on our lips and as we memorize his word and as we're in Bible studies and grace seminary classes and Sunday school classes, it's the word of God is coming to the Lord's Supper and receiving God's grace by faith, believing that Jesus is there and he's empowering us through his presence. These are the means of grace. And if you want to see the fruit of the Spirit growing and manifesting itself in your life, you have to use the God-appointed means that he gave for us to see that fruit evident in our life. The third thing is the fruit of the Spirit when practiced and made manifest in a disciple's life causes us to fulfill the law. 
when the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our life, we are fulfilling the law. When we are being patient and loving others, and kind and gentle, then we're fulfilling the law because we're loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that's why there's no law against these. The fruit of the Spirit is other-centered and is exactly opposite the flesh, which is all about me. And this fruit is manifest in our lives when we put sin and self to death. That's what Paul means when he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've been crucified with Christ. Paul said that in Galatians 2.20. We've been united to his death. His death in our place is as if we died too. That's true because of our union with Christ. And because of that union, we now mortify and put to death Sin. We crucify the passions and desires of sin and selfishness in the flesh now. So this is not a passive thing of just, just let go and let God. No, this is a present reality, Christian. This is war. This is a business that we must be about all day, every day. John Owen said this, The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And that's why I say that the normal Christian life is war. And that's why John Owen also said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And when you are killing sin and selfish desires, you will be walking by the Spirit, as Paul says in verse 25. And when you are walking by the Spirit, there's a promise in Galatians 5, uh, 16, that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word walk here is a, a military term. It was used of armies marching in order, together, staying in formation, the Spirit is marching us as sons and daughters to, his son, to the Son, Jesus Christ, and turning our eyes to him. So there's this uh, community aspect behind this word, that we're in this war, in an army together as sons and daughters of the King. And this implies our need for the church. This implies discipleship, which is what we've been hammering away at again. We never fight sin and selfishness alone. Why? Because the reason you struggle to love and serve others is precisely because you are in community with others. If I was by myself, I'd have no problem loving me, being patient with me, being kind to myself, being gentle. I'd have no trouble being good to me don't y'all know that i'm easy to love from my perspective i am i love me i'm easy it's so easy to be kind to myself the normal christian life is war a war that is fought on the turf of our own hearts as we live with others in the community of our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, and here in the church. It's a war and a battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's a war and a battle between living for me or living for Jesus. It's a war and a battle between loving me 
or loving others, serving me or serving others. Put simply, it's a war and a battle to believe the gospel by faith. And that's what Paul said in Galatians 3. You receive the spirit when you heard the gospel by faith. That's what he says in Galatians 5 when he says, we wait uh, for through the spirit by faith, we eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. It's believing the gospel promises by faith, trusting in those promises And you know what? As I got up this morning, I thought, I've got to preach about killing sin, and I don't know that I'm that good at it. How am I going to get up there and tell these people how to fight sin? It would be much easier for me to get up here and say, let me tell you how to gratify the desires of the flesh, because I'm really good at it. And i got to get up this morning, and I'm like, i got to preach on putting sin to death, and I didn't do that great of a job yesterday. I'm cleaning the house, and Heather's sick and laying in bed, and we have a two-year-old, almost two-year-old Piper running around, and if you've had a two-year-old, then you would agree with, this is what Jerry Seinfeld says about two-year-olds. A two-year-old is kind of like having a blender, but you don't have a top for it. (laughs) I was trying to clean the house yesterday, and every time I turned around, Piper was in some new cabinet, or had grabbed something all over, and it's like, I couldn't even make progress I was like trying to run up a really fast escalator. I was getting nowhere and I was getting frustrated. And then I started getting frustrated at her and frustrated at the kids. I said, can't you help me clean? Why am I the only one who cleans? Ah, not killing sin. I started out trying to serve. I did. I started out saying, I want to serve my family, do the dishes, get caught up on the laundry. And by the end of the day, I was in the flesh, self-absorbed, yelling at my kids, And I got to get up today and tell you to put sin to death or it will be killing you. Well, you know what I do when I get up in the morning like that, like I did this morning? It was a battle and a fight to believe the gospel once again, to say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm blameless in his eyes. And I get up as a fellow uh, sojourner on this path that we're on, marching in formation to turn our eyes towards Jesus. So, to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit is simply a war and a battle to believe the gospel by faith. So, let's close with a word from the other piper in my life. I love my Piper first, but then I also like this guy named John Piper that we named her after. So let's hear a word. We'll close with a word by the other Piper in my life. How then shall we seek to be led by the Spirit? By faith. By meditating on the trustworthiness and preciousness of God's promises until our hearts are free of all fretting and guilt and greed. This is how the Holy Spirit fills and leads The way to walk by the Spirit and so not fulfill the desires of the flesh is to, and listen to this, I love his phrase here, to hear the delectable promises of God and trust them, delight in them and rest in them. They're delectable promises. How then do we walk by the Spirit? The answer is plain. We stop trying to fill the emptiness of our lives with a hundred pieces of world or self and put our souls at rest in God. The Spirit will work the miracle of renewal in your life when you start meditating on his unspeakable promises day and night and resting in them. May God help us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, 
We could spend several months on this passage alone. Just may we take away the big idea that the Christian life is war. We all know it well because we're so good at loving ourselves and it's so hard to love others. And sometimes we want to love and serve others, Father, and we start out that way and then we get selfish and self-absorbed. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to put our sin to death and help us to turn our eyes to your son who went to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. Forgive us and help us to hear the delectable promises of the gospel and by faith may we taste and eat and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.